Last Sunday we began an exploration of this theme of relationships, how we connect to people, how we see them, how we think about them, how we relate to them. And we saw last week that for Christians there are two foundational truths that need to guide us in all of our relationships within the church and the neighborhood. First, the way we relate with and to other people matters greatly to God. He knows how we treat others and he will judge us accordingly. Uh, the second truth is that our relationships with God should shape and form the way we see others and treat them. The way, the way we treat each other is shaped by how God has treated us. God has forgiven us, so we forgive others. God has accepted us, we accept others. Those are the two things we focused on last week, accepting and forgiving one another. Our, our readings made it abundantly clear that this is what God wants us to do. Uh, Romans 14.3, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Both groups, he's accepted. He's happy with both of them, those who eat, those who don't eat. Matthew 18.35, where there, we read that parable of forgiveness, the, the king who forgives this enormous debt. That's what my Heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. You remember this story, that the one man refused to forgive, even though he had been forgiven. And the king called him to account. And Jesus said, that's what will happen to us if we don't forgive. Those are strong words, but we should not fail to give them our full attention. Now this week we're going to focus on the epistle reading for the day that we've already heard because it helps us think about our relationships with people who aren't part of the church, or part of our church, or, or any church for that matter. They might even be antagonistic to the church and to the gospel and its message. So the title for today's message is Missional Relationships. We want to, to think about relationships that strengthen our mission or enable our mission. What, what, what is our mission? What is Jesus, what is it? To make disciples. Uh, whose job is it to make disciples? To whom is this mission being committed? Every single one of us. Every, every member is a missionary in the church. Every one of us is called to make disciples. Now, the relationships that we have with people, strong relationships with people who are not yet acquainted with Jesus, give us opportunities to bring the gospel into their lives. Even more strongly, we might say that they give us an opportunity to be good news in someone else's life. So what should characterize our relationships with people who are not yet acquainted with Jesus, who don't identify themselves as followers of Jesus? Well, I'd like you to look at Philippians 1. It's on page 899 in your pew Bible. Let's turn to this passage. Now, we often refer to Philippians as being one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote several epistles while he was under arrest and waiting for a trial and the outcome of that process. We hear Paul say in verse 12, which we didn't read this morning, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So we, we get this glimpse into Paul's mind in this book. He's, he's under arrest, he's waiting for trial, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Now what might Paul have been thinking? 
is I have no idea if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He has no idea where the Spirit of God will take him next if he does live. His thoughts about dying are reflected in the verses that we heard read earlier. He looks forward to death because he, will, he knows he'll go to be with Christ, but at the same time he doesn't want to die because he still has work to do. And he says to the Philippian Christians, but for your sakes it is better that I continue to live. He wants to continue to serve them and help them. But he knows there are no guarantees. He may or may not see the Christians in Philippi again. Now given that, we can imagine thinking as he writes this book, this, this letter, what one thing do I want them to know and do? I may never see them again. What one thing do I want them to know? What one thing can I say to them now while I still have a chance? And the answer is found in verse 27. And he begins it with the word only. And I'll read it to you from a different version than what we have. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Paul's primary concern for the church, primary concern, whether he sees them again or not, is that they would live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So Paul's concern is that they would live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now the word worth is actually axios, which comes from that bar on the top of the scale, because something of weight was worthy, or weighed, or it was worthy. We, we still use that in our, in our idioms when we talk about things that are worthy of our attention as being weighty matters. They're, they're, something is worthy because it has weight, substance. He wants us to live worthy lives. So now let's look at it in the translations that we have in our Pew Bible. Verse 27. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. We're going to take a look at that this morning. Paul is telling us something that we already know. We actually referred to it in one of our songs this morning. And that is that actions speak more loudly than words. Um, he wants us now to... Did I, did I miss a page here? I guess so. Uh, he wants to see the actions speak louder than words. How we live, how we relate to the people around us, how we interact with people, that impacts how well we'll make disciples. A good reputation opens the door to good conversations about our faith. We sang it a few minutes ago, let my deeds outrun my words. We want our lives to be a representation of the gospel. Jesus Christ. But Paul says that we should live as citizens of heaven. Now, why does he say this? This seems like an odd thing for him to say in the middle of this letter. Live as citizens of heaven worthy of the good news. Now there's, there's five words there. Live as citizens of heaven. Uh, as Paul wrote it, he only used one word. It was a verb. 
And the verb is live as a citizen. It was a verb that meant be a good member of the public citizenry. The words of heaven are inserted by the fellows that translated the New Living Bible that we have, the New Living Version, because they think it's obvious that that's what we're citizens of. We're citizens of heaven, we're citizens of God's kingdom. But why does Paul introduce this idea of citizenship? Why does he bring it up? Well, there's, there's a possible reason. And, and to understand that, we have to understand something about Philippi. Philippi was located in Macedonia, uh, what is present-day Greece, near the spot where in 42 BC they fought the Battle of Philippi, in which Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius. Now following that battle, many of the soldiers who were older retired and stayed in Philippi. Nice place to live there at the top of the Aegean Sea, nice climate, nice, nice place to spend the rest of your life. And they retired there. And the city of Philippi was made into a Roman colony. So it was a little small version of the homeland, Rome, right there in Philippi. If you lived in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. You had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen. People were proud of their Roman citizenship in Philippi. They took it very seriously. So Paul uses a word that they know well, citizenship, and applies them to them, but he shifts it slightly, not as citizens of Rome, but as citizens of God's kingdom, live your lives worthy of the gospel. This is their first, their, their first allegiance, their primary identity, they are part of God's kingdom. So he says they should live worthy of the gospel. Now we need to think about this word gospel. What does it mean? Well, the short answer is that it literally means good news. Now, what the word looks like in Greek, can you bump up a cup? There's good news, now the next one, Greek. There's the Greek word for you. You'll notice there, I wish I had my, my uh, pointer. On the word on the left, there's two gammas. It's that little Y-shaped thing. It's a G sound, but when you've got them together, you pronounce it with an N sound. Euangelion is how you pronounce it. Now, the word you, we find in our word eulogy. It means good. Angelion is basically an angel. But what is an angel? The word means angel, or it means what? Messenger. So the gospel is a good message. Now we, we see this in uh, Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, and the birth announcement of Jesus. Uh, an angel, and we'll call this angel instead of the Greek name by an Anglicized name, an angelos, announces a good message, a gospel, which is a, give us the next word, you angelic, well, that's the verb form. <laughs> I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's just an announcement of the good news. There's a play on words. The angel and the message are the same word. So the gospel is just a good message, a good word, good news, as we often pronounce it. By the way, our word evangelical comes from this word. To be an evangelical is to have a good message. That's got a lot of other baggage now after many, many years of usage, but that's what it means to be an evangelical, to have in your pocket a good message to share with other people. 
But let's refine it a little bit more. Can we, can we think about how Paul was using this word as, as he was writing to the church in Philippi? What you need to know is that this word, gospel, was in use long before Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. Long before it became a, a Christian word in our, in our vocabulary. So I want us to look at some history this morning. And, and the reason for looking at history is I want to try to help us to hear this word, gospel, in the same way that the Christians in Philippi would have heard this word, gospel. So I want you to remember what you learned in junior high school about the civil wars of Rome, the uh, more frequently called the civil wars of the Republic, as the Republic was dying and being replaced by, by an empire. Now, you know that this followed the death of Julius Caesar uh, in 43 BC. He was assassinated, I got the wrong date up there, 43 BC. You've already seen that a key battle in those civil wars was fought just outside of Philippi, the Battle of Philippi. Uh, Brutus and Cassius, those who assassinated Caesar, were the big losers in that battle. As a matter of fact, both took their lives, committed suicide after that battle was over. Uh, Mark Anthony and Octavian were the winners. Now, we won't talk about Mark Anthony. You've known enough about him already in your life, probably, from watching movies about Anthony and Cleopatra. Octavian was the grand nephew of the dead Caesar and was also legally his adopted son. Not long before he died, Caesar adopted Octavian as his son. He had no son of his own other than some illicit children. Eventually, in this battle between Octavian and Mark Anthony, Octavian won. And when he won, he became the first Roman emperor. Not exactly right away, but he's the first Roman emperor in the whole history of Rome. And they changed his name to Augustus. Now, most of us had our first encounter with Augustus, not in junior high school, but in church. Because we meet him in Luke chapter 2, where we read, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. He was the first Roman emperor. Now, he also took some interesting titles for himself. After his death, Julius Caesar was declared to be a god. And not, we, that's not going to feel to us like it would feel to a culture where they had multiple gods. So he's not the god, he's declared to be a god. So Augustus took upon himself the title, Son of God. And as if that wasn't strong enough, Augustus also took upon himself the title Savior, Soter. So he advertised that he was the Savior of Rome and he was a son of a God. Now, I want you to pay attention with me to an inscription that was written in 6 BC and has been found by archaeologists. And it's a long inscription. I'm not going to give you the whole thing. This is an abbreviated inscription. The most divine Caesar, talking about Augustus, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, like he's the creator. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, that's the civil war we just looked at, he restored it 
once more and gave the whole world a new aura. The birthday of the god, talking about Augustus, Caesar, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. The word in that inscription is the same word Paul uses. <coughs> Gospel, the good news, evangelium. So Paul has chosen for Jesus a word that was originally coined for Caesar. And for the rest of the time that they had emperors, whenever a new person would become an emperor, there would be royal announcements. Good news, there is a new emperor. And often it was good news because the previous emperor had been bad news. Good news, we've got a fresh start, a new emperor. And every time his birthday rolled around, same public announcement. Good news. We have a birthday for our emperor, our savior, uh, a son of God, our leader. So basically, see, for the Romans, good news referred to an actual historical event. Not just a good idea, not a plan, an event. The birth or ascension of a man to the throne of emperor. But the idea was that this moves the people in a positive direction, a new way to go. But the bottom line is for them in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord and King. That was the bottom line. Caesar was Lord and King. Christians knew that as well as anyone. In taking over the language and the terminology of the Roman Empire, Paul seems to be deliberately setting up a confrontation with the imperial powers around this question. Who really is Lord and King? For the Christians, the answer is simple. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, is the Lord and King. That's our good news. For the Romans, Augustus and Caesar, that was their good news. Paul sets up this, this, this confrontation between these competing claims. So this is the good news for us. Christ crucified and risen and coming someday again as our judge is Lord and King of the whole earth. And we are to live worthy of that gospel. Jesus is King. Now how do we live so that the doors of conversation about the true King and true Lord are opened up for us? Now throughout Paul's epistles, he, he, he does have a lot to say about this. Uh, he reminds us to work hard at our jobs. He reminds us to mind our own business. He reminds us to, to be loving and respectful towards our spouses and our marriage. He reminds us to take care of our children, to look after them and, and to care for their future. He reminds us to be respectful towards our governments and to pray for those in governing authority over us. He calls us to be people of integrity, to be reliable. And, and we can take all those things and we can see how those would easily open the door for us to have conversations about Jesus with other people. However, Paul gets a little more specific than that in this letter. And he mentions four specific behaviors that are part of living a life worthy of, of the gospel. First, 
He calls us to be united, united as followers of Christ. Verse 27, he encourages us to be standing together with one spirit and in one purpose. So first thing, we are in one spirit. Now this word is ambiguous for us. Because the word, the same word can mean breath, or it can mean the human spirit, that, that part of us that thinks and energizes us, or it can mean the Holy Spirit. The same word can, can mean either. One of the ways that we sometimes identify that it's about the Holy Spirit is that Paul will throw in a definite article, the Spirit. Okay, we think now he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But it's more the context that we have to use to figure out what he's talking about. Is he talking about our being united in our human spirits? Which is not a bad idea. Or is he talking about us being united in the Holy Spirit? What he says in other places gives us some strong hints. He says in Ephesians 4.3, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace says in 1 Corinthians 12, just as one body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. But even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. The unity of Christ's body is facilitated and created by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think here when he says, be united in one spirit, he's saying, be united through that work of the Holy Spirit to make you one. He also says we stand in one purpose. And what is our purpose? What is our purpose? To make disciples. That's, that's our job. So what, what unites us? What unites us is our commitment to Jesus as our Lord and King. We have that common commitment. Jesus is our King. What unites us is our intention to be His disciples, to learn from Him how to live. What unites us is our desire to help other people become disciples. Living in unity is living as citizens of Christ's kingdom, living lives worthy of the gospel. But we need to submit to the Holy Spirit's work for that to happen. Second, we are worthy of the gospel by being a good team. It's, it's a, you can read the Bible without understanding Greek or Hebrew. But it's a lot better when you understand those. Now, most of us don't. Somebody asked me the other day, how's your Greek? And I said, well, it's about as rusty as a 50-year-old pickup parked out behind the barn. Because that's about what it is. That's why we use books and commentaries to help us understand things. There's some important things here in, in the Greek that we need to pay attention to. Uh, what, what does he mean to be a team? The word Paul uses combines two words. The first is soon, which means with. Did we get that up there? Okay. I, I missed a point, sorry. I, sometimes I, I, I pass over a line in my notes and it throws the poor guy in the back off. Uh, soon means with and asleo. What does asleo sound like? Asleo. Athletics. An athlete. What does an athlete do? Competes for a prize. 
So this word means to compete with someone for a prize, to, to play with the team in order to get a prize. Now every team works together to, to win a contest. I watch a lot of football. I, I've been doing that since I was a little kid in Oklahoma, so blame it on my ugly So I watch a lot of football. What's the goal in football? You want to move this odd-shaped ball across a goal line. What is our goal as a team? It was to advance the good news that Jesus is Lord and King and Savior into our world. That's our goal, to advance that good news, to move that good news forward so that it's accessible to the people around us. That's what we're trying to do. So we need to work together as a team to advance this good message into our community. Jesus is King. Usually we focus on the message that Jesus is Savior. That's true. But our good news is bigger than that. Jesus is in charge. He is Lord. He is King. Thirdly, he says, don't be intimidated by those who oppose you. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Now, this small band of Christians in Philippi lived in a very Roman community. And for, those, for them to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, was enormously risky. Because in Philippi, who was Lord? Caesar. And only Caesar. They placed themselves in danger. How could they not be intimidated? They could avoid being intimidated or feeling afraid because they knew that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And they knew that the worst thing that Caesar could do to them was what? Kill them. And what did Jesus say to us? Don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. That's what he said. You need to take that seriously. The early Christians took that seriously. They were not intimidated by the opposition. We have to face the same thing today. Uh, N.T. Wright, Anglican bishop and pastor and theologian and writer, says, In the post-Christian West today, the forces of skepticism and cynicism within our culture are extremely powerful, not the least in newspapers and on television. It's easy for Christians to feel intimidated. But Paul insists that we mustn't be intimidated. Remember, Jesus is in charge, not Caesar not any other person. And finally, we live worthy of the gospel by being willing to suffer. Now, this is one I wanted to leave out. Because none of us want to suffer. We, we don't like it, we avoid it. But Paul wasn't about to leave it out. One of the ways that we live worthy of the gospel is by suffering. Look again at what he says in verse 29 and 30. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. He says, you know I'm in jail, and I may not get out alive. But what else did he say? Verse 12, we didn't read it in the reading, but we referred to it earlier. What's happening to me is advancing the gospel. Even our suffering can advance the gospel. That was Paul's experience. 
Now, I believe that as members of Elam, we all want to live worthy of this good news, of this gospel. We have to be united in prayer as a congregation in order to do that. As we ended the service last week by singing a prayer to God, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing today. I'm going to ask you to sing a prayer to God. It's called Lord of the Church, We Pray for Our Renewing. It's a, it's a beautiful hymn, and it's sung to a, a, a lovely old song that you'll recognize um, that has some impossible notes for men to sing because they're too high. So either when you get those high notes, just look at your watch or uh, drop it down an octave, it doesn't matter, or just make up your own note and sing a softly. Because uh, it, 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 it's some high notes to sing. But the words of this, this hymn, this prayer, are amazing. Uh, we're, we're going to pray in, in verse 1 um, something that, that I, I kind of struggled with a little bit as I, as I was looking at this hymn. We pray, we turn to Christ amid our fear and failing, the will that lacks the courage to be free, the weary labors. You know, I've been a pastor since... 1969. I know something about the weary labors. I've done a lot of weary labors. Why did I do all those weary labors? Because I thought it depended on me. I thought I had to work hard. Wendy will tell you I still do that a lot. The weary labors, all but unavailing. We're going to pray to God that all our weary labors are unavailing. They're not getting done to bring us nearer what a church should be. What will bring us nearer to the church that we should be? Our work? No, we keep working. All of us teaching Sunday school, singing, leading worship, coming to churches and, and worshiping. That's, that's the work of God's people. We all do our work. It's the Holy Spirit who makes us the church that we should be. So we need to be united in prayer that God would make us that church. Now, let's show us this last slide. This is the last verse that we're going to sing. Lord of the Church, we long for our uniting, true to one calling, by one vision stirred, one cross proclaiming, and one creed reciting, one in the truth of Jesus and His Word. So lead us on till toil and trouble ended, one church triumphant, one new song shall sing, to praise His glory, risen and ascended, Christ over all, the everlasting King. Let us sing this song as a prayer that we will be worthy as a church and as individuals of this gospel that Jesus is our King.